What's so cool about that original trip that we took to all the national parks is we didn't know much, if anything, about these five places before we started. And they all turned out to be just incredible experiences. And so I think that's one of the great things about our national park system is there's some incredible places out there. And even if you know a lot about the system, just because you haven't heard about it doesn't mean it can't be incredible. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, our stories of adventures and misadventures as we travel to all the U.S. national parks and public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we'll be sharing some of our favorite hidden gems in the national park system. For those of you who might want to visit some parks that aren't on the top list or swarming with visitors, in this episode, we're going to talk about our top five parks that have lower visitation numbers. That's right. Although it just occurred to me, Matt, that if we tell everyone about these places, they might not be hidden gems any longer. Are we sure we want to do this? Yeah, we've already recorded the podcast <laughs> and we have a deadline. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing it. Today, we're going to skip the warm up and dive straight into the list. And of course, at the end of the episode, we'll answer a question from a listener in our mailbag segment. I'm happy to see that you're all dressed up for our podcast. <laughs> you've got you've gone from pajamas to sweatpants. Yes, it's an upgrade for sure. They're nice sweatpants. <laughs> Thank you. I felt like I wasn't um, taking this seriously enough, though I wasn't projecting an air of professionalism yeah, by showing up in been, my pajamas. <laughs> you've been unprofessional. I, was, I meant to say that, but I'm glad you noticed it myself. So I upgraded to sweatpants. And, and you put switch. perfume on. Like, you, know, you know they can't smell us. <laughs> but you can. I, yeah. And since we're sitting <laughs> oh, right that, next to each other for an hour or two. Uh, so that's was, for me? I was doing you a favor. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> this might be a short podcast, folks. <laughs> we're going to okay. cut this one off short. All right. Okay. Actually, we don't have time for chit-chat today because we have a lot of information to cover in an hour or so. That's right. So we got to get get to it. We do. We do. So today we're going to talk about five national parks that have low visitation. So we're going to call them hidden gems. Now, all of these parks have less than 600,000 visitors a year. So to put that into perspective, like some of the big parks would have seven, eight million visitors a mm, year. Right, right. And so 600,000 might sound like a lot, but it's actually not not that big compared to some of the bigger parks. Right. And a few of these even have uh, less than 100,000, but we'll talk about that as we get there. So yes, we, I felt like these were all hidden gems. We, we loved these parks that we're going to talk about. When we wrote Dear Bob and Sue, I think I even referred to some of them as magical places. But What's the difference between a <laughs> hidden gem, a magical place, a darling? That was your rating? Well, hidden gem and magical place are different in that 
a magical place feels magical. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that clears it up. Right. We right. should we should move on to our first <laughs> hidden magical place. Okay, sounds which good. Which is Dry Tortugas. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know what Dry Tortugas was when we started our national parks trip. I didn't either. Ten, or ten or years ago, mm-hmm. we were months into it. I still didn't. I thought it was a. I thought a tortugas was a type of a burrito <laughs> and there would be like like a burrito festival with uh you know games and all, all the burritos you can eat but it's not but, so you were slightly disappointed right that tortugas <laughs> is the spanish word for turtle and dry meaning there's this is a series of islands about 70 miles west of key west florida and the reason they're called dry is because there's there's not there's no fresh water on the islands and uh so the visitation in 2019 was only 79,000 so less than 80,000 people right and it's hard to get to what's really interesting i think about dry tortugas is it is the site of a civil war fort yes so one of the, the the one of the biggest islands that make up these seven islands that make up the dry tortugas is the entire footprint is a Civil War era uh, fort, fort, ma- fort Jefferson, man-made, yeah. yeah. A masonry fort, which we didn't even know mm-hmm. what a mason masonry fort was until we got there. Yeah, so it, it was, uh, they started building it before the Civil War, and you can tell that, uh, so the, the war interrupted the construction. And what's interesting about this piece of land is, even though, Florida went to the Confederacy. This piece of land stayed as part of the Union. Mm-hmm. And so while it was being built, they had to stop using the bricks that they were getting locally from the Florida area because that was now in the Confederacy. And they had to ship bricks in from Maine. And so you can see the level of bricks where they change color. Because they had to ship them in, and uh, so that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And they they uh, finished the fort, and well, actually, I think they never finished it, did they? Was... Uh, I don't think they finished it completely. Right, right. Yeah, it was left unfinished. But that's that's what most people go to see when they go to Dry Tortugas National Park. Um, so it is open year round. Now, when we went, it was November, and we did a whole uh, group of parks at that point. We went to Virgin Islands and Everglades, Biscayne, and Dry Tortugas. Now, the only way to get to Dry Tortugas is either by a float plane or boat, private boats can go, or the park has a concession airboat called the Yankee Freedom. Yeah, I guess you could swim. (laughs) <laughs> the 70, 70 miles. miles. It'd be a, that's not, that's it'd not be a long, long way. <laughs> yeah, so we took the Yankee Freedom, and it was a, it's about a two-hour boat ride, a, a big boat. It was really nice. I actually enjoyed the boat ride a lot. Yeah, it was a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, obviously, not, not a lot to see, but it was a beautiful ocean voyage out there. And uh, mm-hmm. then it gets uh, very shallow, obviously, right, right by the islands. So there's a series of islands. And Another thing that people go there to do is snorkel. Right. Or scuba, scuba dive, I guess, or snorkel. Yeah, the waters are really clear there. It's beautiful turquoise waters off of um, off of these islands. So it's absolutely beautiful. Now, 
where to stay if you're going to visit the park. There's really only one place to stay, wouldn't you say? Because the boat, especially if you do it like we did, the boat left at 8 o'clock in the morning. And so just right out of Key West. Well, so, the town of Key West. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. a lot of places to stay in Key West. Right. But right, there's, uh, there is some camping on Dry Tortugas. Mm-hmm. Small camp, small uh, campground there. Yeah. But, but yeah, Key West uh, mm-hmm. was a very different cultural <laughs> experience than Dry Tortugas. I kind of felt like you loved Key West, like you fit right in there. I don't know. <laughs> it, it depends on uh, how many margaritas you have or pina coladas. Um, when we wrote the book, we were uh, we were particularly impressed by all of the T-shirt shops and some of the things on the T-shirts, and and that was one of the early decisions in writing the book that we couldn't write the things that we saw on the T-shirts because we figured <laughs> oh, that's that, right. that would put us into an R rating pretty uh-huh. quick. Yeah, I so, forgot about that. So the Key West description was um, pretty short because mm-hmm. there's only so many things we could say and keep it family friendly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was a, certainly – a party atmosphere. Yeah, it, it felt to us, we'd never been there before the, that particular trip. It felt to me a lot like Las Vegas. There were people just, crowds of people wandering the streets and the, everyone, I guess they have an open beverage, um, open container law. So people were walking around the streets with their drinks in hand and it, and partying. It, it, I don't know, it had a very, uh, very Vegas feeling to me. And chickens. Oh, and chickens. Yeah. There were chickens everywhere, which yeah. was so random. And strange. Yeah, I guess that's the thing in Key West. Mm-hmm. They've been there for a long, long time. Uh-huh. Our particular hotel had had a mother chicken with a bunch, bunch of little baby chicks. Remember, you were gonna you you're trying to <laughs> capture them and keep them in our room because they were running around the cars. And you well, thought, well, yeah, the they were, were right in over. the middle of the parking lot where cars would come in to to check into the hotel, and they were tiny. Yeah, they were darting around I like was tennis ball size. They were. I was worried about them. I was also worried that you were going to buy one of those T-shirts and or I think you even said you were going to grow your hair into a ponytail. <laughs> no. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that I have enough hair for a ponytail. I was considering for a while going to tank tops. Oh, that's, <laughs> but that's right. Yeah. <laughs> then I looked in a mirror and then I realized that's, that's – <laughs> It was a bad idea. There were a lot of tank tops down there on men. Yeah. Yes. I know. Surprisingly so. Probably only men. Which, yeah, that's that's wrong. Uh, Yeah. They need to get a full shirt. (laughs) All right. So back to the park itself. So when we, we took the boat, got there around 10, and when we got off the boat, we took care of our park business, which was basically taking our photo in front of the sign and getting the park stamp and the brochure. And then there was an optional uh, ranger-led tour of the fort, which we decided to go on. And that was really interesting. Yeah. One of the things they told us about Fort Jefferson probably the f- most famous uh, inhabitant because it was used as a prison for a while. One of the uh, most famous inhabitants of the prison was Samuel Mudd. So he was a doctor. He was he helped John Wilkes Booth after the assassination of Lincoln. Uh, John Wilkes Booth had broken his leg and I guess Samuel Mudd's the one who said it. And when they found this out and they arrested him, it was such an egregious crime that they sentenced Samuel Mudd to uh, Fort Jefferson's prison. And he 
he was there for several years. He actually tried to escape. Um, and then there was a yellow fever outbreak on Dry Tortugas, and he was instrumental in saving a lot of the lives of the prisoners. And so a couple of years later, he because of that, he he was pardoned. So he, he was there for about four or five years. Mm-hmm. And the famous phrase, your name is Mud. Comes from Samuel Mudd because he was – he was reviled so much uh-huh. for helping John Wilkes Booth that, uh, yeah, yeah, you didn't want to be you, you didn't want to be called mud. No, you didn't. There were all kinds of fascinating stories that the ranger told us uh, during the tour. And um, another thing that I liked is that they they kind of let you wander freely around the fort. Now there were some areas that were closed off due to construction or they were just in too bad of a shape to let people in. But but they kind of let you um, go about your own way th- throughout the day, which was nice too. Yeah. I think we walked pretty much around the entire perimeter. Mm-hmm. There's a we, moat. Mm-hmm. And we could see areas of the, the structure that was kind of falling apart. I think there's a concern that the you know, all the years of the ocean and the pounding and as storms come through that it's going to eventually probably take that structure down. Uh, There were a few areas that looked like they were crumbling. But I got to say, it's pretty good shape for being whatever, 150 years old. Yeah, I know. It's remarkable. And then uh, there is no food available anywhere on this little island. And so the um, this concessionaire boat serves lunch. So after we wandered around in the morning, we had lunch on the boat. And then in the afternoon, we had about two or three hours. And most people just went to the beach. There's a beautiful little sand beach. And they snorkeled and they swam. And so that's what we did. We sat on the beach in the sun. And it was just absolutely beautiful. It was a, it was a great day. It was a great day. Boat ride out, boat ride back, mm-hmm. and spending a few hours in the, in the park. So that, yes, that I would say that's, that is both a hidden gem and a magical place. I agree. I agree. So next up, we are going to be heading west, all the way over to West Texas to talk about Big Bend National Park. Now, the visitation in 2019 was about 463,000. So Big Bend is a huge park. You know, we would recommend spending at least three days, um, better yet, up to a week, because there is so much to see and and so many areas to to check out. We went in late October. The National Park Service website says the busiest time is mid-January through mid-April. And that's probably a great time to go. Summers would obviously be too hot. It was still pretty warm when Mm -hmm. we were there. We were there right at... Uh, the the very end of October. Yeah, Halloween. Yeah, Halloween. Mm -hmm. And I remember the hike I think we did on Halloween day, it was 100 degrees in the desert. Now, there's one odd thing about the park is right in the center is a little mountain range, the Mm -hmm. Chisos Mountains. Mm -hmm. And it has really the kind of within the park, the only place to stay, which is Chisos Mountain Lodge. And that's where we stayed. Mm -hmm. And it was up at 5,400 feet. So up there... It wasn't as warm. It was still pretty warm. Right. It, it was like a different park up there. It was beautiful. And there were some great hikes up there as well. So I, even if you can't get a reservation at Chiso's Mountain Lodge, you should definitely go up there, check out the area, do some hikes. And uh, there's a great restaurant there attached to the lodge that you know anybody can have a meal in. If you look at a map of Texas 
and the southern border with Mexico. There is a bump about halfway, you know, north, uh, east-west of if you're looking at the border, there's a there's a bump, you know, mm-hmm. a hump. And that that big bend in the Rio Grande River, if you kind of drew a straight line across the, the river as if that bend weren't there, that is the footprint of the park. So that's why it's called Big Bend. It's it's the big uh, area of the river that, that goes south and then comes back up north. And that is uh, what? It shares about 188 miles yeah. of, of it, border with Mexico. Oh, right, right. And when we were there in 2010 – all of the border crossings were closed because of 9-11. Uh, apparently, before 9-11, you could cross over to this tiny little town called Boquillas. And now they have reopened it, and now you can once again cross over. Um, so you do have to have a passport with you. And the way that works is the Mexican nationals will ferry you across the river on a little rowboat for about $5. Uh, it's a very short span of river. I guess you you can technically, you could wade across it if the water level is low enough, but the park discourages that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it, I don't know when it gets that low. When we were there in, in October, it was running pretty pretty hard. Mm-hmm, it was. And uh, anyway, once you, I was reading about this because we obviously didn't do this because the border was closed, but when you get across to the uh, Mexican side, then it's another half of a mile to the little town of Boquillas. And so you can either walk it or they will rent you a donkey or a burro or there's even like an open bed pickup truck that you can pay to ride in. And then once you're in the little town, there's a, a restaurant or two and they sell little trinket souvenirs. And so, I mean, a lot of people go over there for a few hours and seem to really enjoy it. But it is a true border crossing and they have a port of entry where on both sides where they, you know, stamp your passport so I don't know. Next time we go, I think I'd like to do that. Yeah, that must be very different than when we were there because mm-hmm. we went down that trail. There's a parking lot mm-hmm. or was was then. I'm sure it's bigger now. We went down the trail to the river and instead of, of course, going across the river because it was illegal, we then hiked further east for a mile or two. Right, and, it's a pretty canyon. And we were uh, pretty much by ourselves. As, as we were hiking down that trail, we saw a, a couple of areas where, uh, I guess at that time, the Mexicans would come across the river, which would be illegal mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. They would leave things that they made. Mm-hmm. Um, Little beaded. Get, be, beaded gifts and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they would put a coffee can. And then they would go back across the river and watch hikers and then shout encouragement across the river, you know, please buy our stuff. And mm-hmm. then you just put money in the coffee can. And so we saw a couple of those. And then we had uh, – we saw another man on the other side of the river. He was singing, uh, singing very loud. And then La Cucaracha. A, right. And then he, he had a coffee can asking on the U.S. side, asking uh-huh. for donations. So clearly they were going back and forth across the river mm-hmm. uh, every now and then. And I would have bought all of those trinkets. They were um, There was like one that was a beaded scorpion. They were actually really, really cute. But before we went there, we had stopped in at the visitor center and the ranger specifically said, you will see trinkets for sale. Do not buy them. It was illegal. And so Yeah, it was illegal. So I felt bad because you certainly would want to support these people. Um, but we, you know, we we obeyed the rules and we, we didn't buy them. Uh, and we only saw one other couple when we were there. Yeah, we kept uh, walking further 
east along the river, and it was the the river was running pretty hard. I mean, it's the, mm-hmm. the Rio Grande, uh, and then uh, this other couple was behind us, and they were kind of catching us. And what I thought was weird, we we looked back at them, and they had on. So it's probably 95 to 100 degrees out. And they had long pants, long shirts, gloves, hats, hoods, and masks on. Like they had every, literally every inch of their body covered. And I thought that was a little odd. Now, some people are very sensitive to the sun and mm-hmm. maybe have you know issues with their skin or skin history of skin cancer. So I get it. Like they're, they're trying to protect themselves. Um but what made it even more weird is a little bit later, they go to the right to the edge of the river, and the man then takes all of his stuff off, like all of his clothes except his underwear. Uh-huh. So now the guy who had every inch of his body covered now only has underwear on. <laughs> and he jumps in the river, which, of course, is illegal and really and, and gross. It, it's not, yeah, it's not a particularly clean river. And dangerous the the, mm-hmm. the uh, water was moving quickly and he's swimming and he's trying to get to the mexican side of the river and he's struggling i mean like the only thing above the water was his head yeah and so he finally like, i i didn't know we were just kind of standing there with our mouth open like there was nothing we could do to help him <laughs> if he got in trouble uh, and the woman, she was on the other side, the U.S. side of the river, taking photos of all this. And so he finally gets to shore and he just like like puts his arms up like, you know, uh, I'm here, like uh, like I made it. And she's mm-hmm. taking pictures. And I thought, well, how are you going to get back? Mm-hmm. Because I didn't see a really a, a place where he could then hike back west and then, you know, swim downstream again. So a- anyway, that was just weird it was weird and at that point we decided we needed to leave <laughs> because yeah. we didn't want to be there if uh if he needed to someone to jump into the water to try to save him but uh spoiler alert we saw the same couple the next day because they were wearing their um full body clothing and uh so they he seemed to survive that swim just fine i liked uh big bend for the diversity of hikes because there were Desert hikes. Mm-hmm. There were some historic areas uh, that we hiked around. There was the mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, up in the mountains, there's always a chance of seeing a mountain lion. Uh, yeah, yeah. uh, there's mountain lions that lived up there. Uh, we did not see any. I'm pretty sure they I'm, saw us. I'm sure they did too. I know. And there were petroglyphs, and there just, it was a incredible array of. Um, well, natural wonders, and as Matt had said, some really great historic um, things to see as well. And the stars at night were incredible because, of course, it's out in the middle of nowhere. There are no towns nearby to speak of of any size. And, uh, yeah, it was an incredible park. And that's one park that we have not been back to yet, and I am just itching to go. Yeah. Some of the hikes, we we hiked to the Balanced Rock. I remember that. That was uh, out to the east side of the park. and. The Lost Mine Trail, the Window Trail. The Window Trail was interesting, although at the very end, there's a steep drop off. I, you were getting close I to know. the eggs. I was, <laughs> felt like I needed to tie a rope to you. You were getting too close. The Chimneys Trail. Yeah. 
Yeah. I know, and and some beautiful sunsets. So, yeah, it is a great park. Um, and did we mention there are, gosh, at least a half a dozen campgrounds too? So maybe when we go back, we will we'll camp. That would be well. Fun. The other thing, and and maybe we should do this sometime, is go back that same time of the year because that first full weekend in November is the little town to the west, Trilingua, Texas has the world champion chili cook-off. That's right. So we could go to that mm-hmm. and visit the park. Although that that's probably when it's uh, it's most crowded. Yeah, but that would be a win-win, the park and chili. Okay, moving on. So, Matt, I'm going to sneak one in here that wasn't on the list only because I have to. <laughs> so moving slightly north of Big Bend is my favorite Carlsbad Caverns, New Mexico. Uh, the visitation last year was about 440,000 people. So we did an entire podcast episode on Carlsbad Caverns, so we're not going to talk about it today. You can go back and listen to that episode and find out everything you'd want to know about Carlsbad and why I loved it so much. All right. Karen would have this podcast be the Carlsbad Caverns <laughs> podcast, Every time. which it isn't. Right. So I have to look at the outline before every episode and take Carlsbad Caverns out of the outline each I'm, week or each uh, every other week. I'm trying to slip it yeah, in wherever I no, can. We're, we're, we're moving on. We are going to go further north to southwestern Colorado and Mesa Verde. Mm. Now, I'm surprised that its visitation is shy of 600,000 a year. It's about 550,000 a year. At least that's what it was in 2019 because it is such a cool park. Now, it is a park for – it's a beautiful, physically beautiful area, but the – main attraction are the archaeological sites. Mm -hmm. And there are at least 5,000 known archaeological sites in in this national park. Mm -hmm. And they weren't weren't discovered by Westerners until 1888. Richard Wetherill and his brother-in-law, Charlie Mason, were, I guess they were rounding up cattle or driving cattle through the area and they came across an archaeological site and to make a long story short 18 years later it was this area and and the archaeological sites were made into a national park to protect it right to, from to looting protect it because mm-hmm. there were well and some of it was looting but some of it was uh, there were people uh, going through the archaeological sites and and actually doing some recording and and documentation, but taking uh, artifacts out of the sites. And the problem was it wasn't illegal. There was nothing illegal about it, and so they had to pretty quickly um, rewrite the laws and and figure out how to protect this because literally a gentleman had like train car loads full of archaeological pieces that mm-hmm. he was taking away and they said there's nothing we can do about it it's not illegal so um they they finally protected it as a national park in in 1906 mm-hmm. and there are about 600 cliff dwellings throughout the park. However, most of them are still unexcavated and they're not open to the public. There are about a half a dozen cliff dwellings that the public can actually view and all of those are by ranger led tour only. 
yeah, like you said, the park is open all year round. The tours of the cliff dwellings are from mid-May to mid-October. Yeah, so and, that's that's most likely when you'd want to go, so you'd have a chance to, to go see these places. Right, and the thing to keep in mind is it's at elevation. It, it doesn't look like it would be uh, high elevation, but it's from 7,000 to 8,500 feet. Um, so it, it can get cool at night. Air is thinner up there, so just keep in mind that uh, this is a – it, they, they call it a mesa. It's actually slanted, but it's pretty flat up there. It is once you get up there. Mm-hmm. So we have been to this park three times now because we love it so much. Uh, but when we originally went, it was in July, and we combined it with all the other Colorado national parks. So we went to Rocky Mountain. We went to Black Canyon of the Gunnison, then Mesa Verde, and then Great Sand Dunes. We made a big sweep. And that's a lot of ground to cover in right, a big and, area. Right, because the, the Colorado is so mountainous. Mm-hmm. at least the western half and so it's harder to get to all of those places than it sounds <laughs> a but, lot harder. but it's a, a incredible trip you you could throw in there if, if you're going to do that loop ure oh uh, sure yeah yes absolutely we discovered or, that later ure yeah as, as they said <laughs> So I would probably say you'd want at least two days, spend two days in Mesa Verde. They have uh, they have three standard tours available, Balcony House, Long House, and Cliff Palace. And then they have these what they call special tours available um, throughout the summer on different days. And if you go to recreation.gov, it will give you a list of these special tours. And you need to definitely buy your tour tickets ahead of time because they sell out. Uh, and we've done a couple of those now and really enjoyed them. Right. We did Mug House. Mm-hmm. And this last time we did Square Tower House. Right. Mm-hmm. So what they are, and, and the descriptions on recreation.gov are really great. They'll tell you how far you have to hike out, you know, what ladders are involved and what you'll see. They're they're a little more rugged. Uh, the groups of people are much smaller. I think, you know, they limit it to what, about a dozen maybe? Yep. Uh, so it's a great way to spend some time with a ranger and see a site with um, with a lot fewer people. Now, you could stay in the town of Cortez. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a campground in the park. But where we've stayed every time we've visited is... Farview Lodge that we talked about. We we talked about that on our... Well, we didn't. So we did a podcast on our favorite National Park Lodges, and Farview Lodge was in there, but the podcast went so long that we had to cut it out. But it should... I mean, it was in there because it's a great place to stay. Well, yeah. In in that podcast, there there were a lot of lodges that we had to cut out just just for time. And so Farview Lodge is is one of our favorite, and it's it's a great place to stay because you're right right up there on the mesa Mm -hmm. and close to the tour, especially if you have a tour early in the day. It's it's not much of a drive. Right. And it's more, it's not a lodge uh, like some of the other historic lodges. It's more of a, a motel style with, with individual buildings that you walk into your room from the parking lot. But they've redone them all in sort of this... Um, I don't know what you'd call it, the Southwest design, and they have Indian blankets, and it's they're just absolutely beautiful. And uh, and the restaurant that's there at the lodge is also one of our favorites, especially yours. <laughs> right, yeah. I had Poblano Rellenos there. Every time. For, yeah, and it's <laughs> fantastic. It was fantastic food. Now, as far as accessibility on these tours, I did want to mention that all of them involve climbing ladders. 
to some degree, some are are a lot bigger than others. So, you know, when we were standing in line for the tour, we saw all ages of people. Um, so And physical ability. Yeah. So don't let the ladders dissuade you. I think most people can do them and they're actually fun. You kind of feel like being a kid again, going up and down these ladders. But the, the reason for that is that these dwellings are actually situated in the face of the cliff. So you have to get down there and you have to get back up. So just know ahead of time that, you know, you want you, you want to be able to be going up and down ladders if you're going to do these tours. Yeah. And you'll be fine if you pay attention. Mm-hmm. One thing they did in this park is they built a new visitor center in the last 10 years close to the entrance. And what's one thing that I really thought was cool about this new visitor center is there are so many artifacts that they've that they have in their this research center that's attached to the visitor center, and instead of just having that be separate from the public, um, so that researchers can you know, work on the artifacts, there's actually some glass walls that show the storage areas, and so even though. The artifacts are back in the research area. At least there's some glass there where you can kind of see into the area. I thought that was an interesting and and smart thing to do as they built that. I did too. I hope they can find a way to display some more of those because I I sure would love to see them. But what did we love about this park? I just, you know, I loved seeing all those cliff dwellings and being able to actually go down inside them. Um, and if you stand on some of these lookout areas with these incredible views, you can see just dozens, dozens of cliff dwellings hidden in in the cliffs around there. It's it's very cool. And it's always interesting to imagine living there. It wasn't that long ago. These, these uh, cliff dwellings were inhabited 500 to 1,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's not that long ago. And there were it, it one time there are quite a few people living on this mesa, so it's it's always fun to just think about like what what would it be like to live there? What what would it be like to raise a toddler on the oh, edge of the cliffs? I right? I mean, all the, all the challenges of everyday life. So yeah, and and one more thing that was as Matt was saying. Yeah, they didn't have ladders back then. That was something. This is something that the Park Service has put in for us. They basically scurried up and down these cliff faces, and you can actually see their their handholds and footholds carved into the rock. So yeah, so life back then was was completely different for for these people who live there. And and it is fascinating to go and take a, a little peek at it. So next, we are moving east to Great Basin National Park, which is located in eastern Nevada. It's about a four, four and a half hour drive from Las Vegas. Now, its visitation in 2019 was 131,000. When to go? When to go to that park? It it really depends on what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to hike, obviously it's summertime. If you want to snowshoe, it's uh, you know obviously winter. We tried to, we went there once in the winter and tried to snowshoe, but it was unfortunately it was low snow year, so we weren't able to uh, get out and and snowshoe. It it is a park of extremes. Definitely, um, there's uh, there's a there's about an eight thousand foot differential between the peak of the park and kind of down by where the visitor center is. I know. It's crazy. So Wheeler Peak is 
the main uh, feature of the park, and that's you mm-hmm. know, and, and the, yeah. Then from there, you can see like the the valley below, but it's the flat desert area. It's pretty striking. Yeah, and there's uh, basically one main road that goes up through the park. Uh, it's the scenic drive that takes you. It's, I think it's about twelve miles. It takes you up to that to the campground uh, and to access Wheeler Peak. But it's an absolutely gorgeous drive. Now, as far as where to stay, there is a tiny microscopic town outside the park called Baker, Nevada, which I think has a population of about 12 people. Yeah, and a couple of cats. <laughs> and a couple of cats. That's where we stayed. The The little tiny motel when we were there was called uh, the Silver Jack. Now, we recently drove back through there and noticed it's still there, but it has a new name. So right. it, it was a cute place to stay. Now, there are also uh, five campgrounds in the park, too. So, you know, next time we go, we could actually try camping. It's a good-sized park, even though there was only 131,000 mm-hmm. people who went there in 2019. Now, there's a, they have a few attractions. Yeah. I mean, other than just the landscape being pretty incredible to see. Uh, the Leeming Cave uh-huh. uh, is the big is the big deal, and and most people are going to the park to visit the cave. When we went, and this is how unprepared we were when we did our first national park tour, I don't even think we knew that we, there was a cave. We didn't, and I remember we walked into the Lehman Cave Visitor Center. So there are two visitor centers. There's a huge one outside the park, and then there's the Lehman Cave Visitor Center in the park. I remember we stopped there first. We walked in. We were the only people there, and as we approached the information desk, the ranger said, hey, folks, are you here to do the cave tour? And at the exact same time, I said yes, and, and Matt I said, said no. 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 <laughs> We're not cave people. Yeah. And so we didn't do the cave tour because we only had that day and there were some hikes we wanted to do. So next time, absolutely, we'll do the cave. Right. The other attraction is it has the park has the only glacier in the state of Nevada. I know. And that's uh, you can see it from if you drive to the end of the park road. Mm hmm. You can hike to it, which is what we did. We, we we hiked up to the base of it, basically. And the other cool thing about the park is on that hike, you go through a stand of bristlecone pine trees. I know. And That's... I love bristlecone pines just because they're ancient. Right. They're some of the – well, they are the oldest trees on the planet from anywhere from – three to 5,000 years old. It's incredible to see. And on that same trip, we had um, been to Bryce Canyon National Park. And at the end of the park road at the high elevation of Bryce Canyon, we had seen the bristlecone pines there. So we were actually really excited to to go and see them at Great Basin. The other parks where these trees can be found are uh, Cedar Breaks National Monument. And um, in the National Forest, there's a place called the Ancient Bristlecone Pine Forest and that's in California. Yeah, the Inyo uh, Mm -hmm. National Forest on the east side of the Sierras. Exactly. So to to see both the Bristlecone Pines and Wheeler Peak Glacier, um, you go to the end of that scenic road, which is where the Wheeler Peak Campground is, and you park there, and it's about a mile and a half to get to the Bristlecone Pine Trees, and then it's a little bit further on to to get to the glacier. Yeah, we we didn't get to, like, walk on the glacier. It's still... 
far enough away that but but you can see it it's, it's yeah never I, it never melts all the way down so that makes it a glacier and it's a state of nevada which everyone thinks of as just a desert state so that's pretty cool it was cool we went to the end of the established trail and at that point you can scramble on through you know make your own path and you you can go to the base of the glacier but uh, we opted to turn around at that point and that hike Remember, if you're going to do it, it starts at almost 10,000 feet. I know. And it goes up another thousand. So you, you're going to have to adjust for that and take it slow. I know. Pro- I remember probably that. Probably be out of breath. I was huffing and a puffing. <laughs> I thought I was just out of shape, but I'm going to blame it on the altitude that we were at. <laughs> um, so that night, so we had a full day doing all this. And then we went back to our little uh, motel and had dinner. And then we went back into the park at night when it was dark. And we saw the stars come out. And I remember that was being, that was just incredible. Yeah, that was beautiful. Uh, it's very, very dark area. I don't know if it's um, designated an official dark place, but uh, it's it's got to be. There's just mm-hmm. really nothing even close to it in, in in terms of civilization. So yeah, I I love that park uh, just because it's it's a unique landscape in the middle of the desert and mm-hmm. uh, the bristlecone pines. Yeah. Also, I should mention to you that we were there at the end of September. It was September 26th. And all of the aspen trees at that point had turned, their leaves had turned to gold. And as we drove up that scenic parkway, it was stunning. So that was actually a beautiful time to visit because the trees were lovely. The weather was great. And it seemed like there was hardly anybody there. Right. There's like like we said, not a lot not a lot of people visit that park. Okay, our final hidden gem magical place is Lassen Volcanic in Northern California. It has about five hundred thousand visitors a year, or it sees about five hundred thousand visitors a year. It's like a it's I would describe it as like a mini Yellowstone. I would too. In terms of, well, one, it has thermal features, which are very rare outside the Yellowstone area. Um, there's an area called Bumpus Hell, not Bumpus's Hell. It's just <laughs> Bumpus Hell. That, and uh, it has uh, like bubbling mud pots and uh, the, the park has put uh, a series of boardwalks through that. So you can kind of get into... The, the thermal features, but that that's that's pretty cool. It was very cool, and like Yellowstone, it has um, it has mountains and it has beautiful lakes. Uh, the only thing it does not have that Yellowstone has, there were no bison. There are no bison <laughs> that we know of, right? At least we didn't see any. But yeah, it was it was we didn't realize it was going to be like that, but it, it sure reminded us of Yellowstone. When to go? Again, that kind of depends on what you want to do. Um, so Lassen Volcanic is also at high elevation around, depending on where you are in the park, it's around 8,000 to 8,500 feet. So they see a ton of snow in the winter. So if hiking is your thing, you're going to want to go in July and not before July because there's still so much snow through September. And that's kind of your hiking window. And after that, you're going to want to turn to some snow activities. Right. Well, it is a short window. We were Mm -hmm. there probably the third week of September when when we visited it the first time on our, our original National Park trip. And it was a beautiful day, but it had snowed that morning. And there was maybe, what, 
couple inches of snow on the ground. Now, yeah. the sun came out later and then the snow was melting and steam was coming off the snow and we happened to be going to the Bumpus Hill area mm-hmm. that morning and it was mm-hmm. it was incredible. That was definitely a magical place and a magical time. We yeah, we went to Bumpus Hill and that that's a, a hike of about 3 miles round trip if you walk down on all the boardwalks. So we went down and the snow was starting to melt and in the sun it was all crystally and shimmery and then the steam was coming up from all these thermal features, and it was crazy magical, beautiful. And we we have said on a couple of podcasts about um, when you go to a park, you might have your agenda of the thing you want to do or what you want to see, but uh, whether or not that happens the way you want it, uh, just keep an open mind because oftentimes incredible things happen that you had you, you didn't plan, and this was – this was definitely one of them. We didn't expect snow in September. We didn't expect then the sun to come out and this incredible sight. So it, it was just an incredible sight. It was. It was. There was also a camera crew from Good Morning America that was filming all of this, and it was just like I think we were like the only four people in the park. We the, were, and they interviewed us because there was no one else. Yeah, the to. camera guy and the <laughs> producer and us, and and so. Yeah, they they captured an incredible morning that that day. They did. So after we did the the Bumpus Hell hike, we went over to um, to climb Lassen Peak, which is another popular hike in the park. So I guess back in what 1915, Lassen Peak erupted, and it was a huge eruption. And I think it's the only one in the United States to erupt in the 20th century, besides Mount St. Helens. Well, the Nova Erupta. Uh, volcano up in Alaska was just about the same time. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's so right. That, that must have been a very volatile time for volcanoes back then. Mm-hmm. But now, I mean, it's still an. They say it's still an active volcano. I mean, it, it could still it go could up. Blow. So I was slightly nervous about hiking it. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, we hiked about halfway up, and at that point, the trail was closed because there were construction workers. There was a trail crew up there. Um, stabilizing the trail. So we had to turn around at about halfway. But if you do the entire hike, it's two and a half miles up to the top and about a 2,000 foot elevation gain. Yeah, so it's a pretty difficult mm-hmm. hike. Yeah. I remember driving through the park, seeing the peak, uh, driving up to it. The parking lot was completely empty in September when, I know. when we did that. But what's one of the things that struck me about the park, I think. On that particular visit, we had driven all the way south to north and then back north to south and just the the scenery, Mm -hmm. Um, curvy roads and around every turn, uh, great views of the mountains. And so that's... That that's what I liked. Yeah, I love the Bumpus Hell area. That was that was fantastic. There are so many hikes in Lassen Volcanic, and so many backpacking trips you can do. And as a matter of fact, um, seventeen miles of the Pacific Crest Trail run through Lassen. So that's that, cool. that would be cool to do right. too. Now we didn't mention where to stay. So the the park has about a half a dozen campgrounds, and if you're not into camping, they also have Manzanita Lake camping cabins, or there's a, another place to stay in the park called Drake's Bad Guest Ranch. Now, we stayed, both times we were there in September, we stayed in the town of Reading. Right, which is what, mm-hmm. an hour, yeah. hour-ish mm-hmm. drive to the 
entrance. You can kind of it's kind of equidistance between the north and south entrance. Right. Uh, yeah. Not, not a not a, really a direct shot, but it's it's not inconvenient to to stay in Reading. No. Next time we go, I'd like to stay in the park though. And those um, all of the the places that I mentioned are available. If you go to the National Park Service website, they have links to all these places to stay. So those are some of our hidden gems, magical places in the national park system. And what's so cool about, well, that that original trip that we took to all the national parks is we didn't know much, if anything, about these five places before we started. And they all turned out to be just incredible experiences. And so I think that's one of the great things about our national park system, not just national park, national parks, but the monuments and the historic places is there's some incredible places out there. And even if you know a lot about the system, there's probably hidden places out there that, you know, once you go, you'll have an incredible time and, you know, explore the, explore the system. And and just because you haven't heard about it doesn't mean it, it can't be incredible. Right. And of course, these that we've talked about are specifically national parks. But if we were to do this um, hidden gems and if we were to talk about, you know, other national park sites like national monuments and uh, national recreation areas, the list of hidden gems would be miles long because there are so many out there available to all of us. On today's mailbag, we have a question from Susan and Bob in San Diego. And their question is, if you were able to be a ranger in any of the places you've visited, where would you feel the most content? Why that particular place? And is it because of the beauty, the ability to share with the public your love of that public space? All right. That is a great. A lot of little sub questions Mm -hmm. in there. It's a great question, though, especially given that we were talking about some of these hidden gems today. So I'll let you go first, Matt. Uh, Where would you want to be a ranger? Wow. Again, that's hard to narrow it down to one. I think maybe Yellowstone just because of the diversity of landscape and experiences. Mm -hmm. I love the bison. Yeah. Um, Probably wouldn't be terribly thrilled about the big crowds at certain times of the year but yeah the the wildlife i mean they have really everything there they have grizzly bears they have bison they have elk and they have the the lamar valley which feels like the you know the you're you're going back into history and uh, it's untouched Really, that area, the whole area of Yellowstone is was never developed and never tamed. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they have mountains. They have everything. Right. And in the winter, you have uh, snow experiences and cold experiences that are incredible. Snowmobiling and um, snowshoeing through the through the park. Uh, yeah, I think that I think Yellowstone would be it. and probably the and we've seen it before. When people see some of these places for the first time, it's it's such a thrill for them mm-hmm. to see that and help facilitate that experience and, you know, to help protect people from some of the wild places. I think that that would be yeah, interesting. That to would do. be a great place to be, a ranger for where, sure. Where would you be a ranger? 
Well, <laughs> would you be surprised if I said Carlsbad Caverns? <laughs> no, I wouldn't be. But this is the, okay. Carl, the Carlsbad okay. Cavern <laughs> podcast. podcast starring Karen I'm, Smith. All right, I'm going to branch out on my own. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, so I actually have two, and they're both we talked about today. So Carlsbad Caverns, yes, and also Mesa Verde. And I feel like both of those are really small, intimate places where it would be really fun to be a ranger and take people on these tours. You know, they're not either one. They're not hiking outside on their own. They're very um, sort of structured. And I think I would do well in that environment. And it would just be fun to show people both the caves and these cliff dwellings. Also, on a very selfish note, maybe if I were a ranger at... Mesa Verde, I would get a chance to see some of those other cliff dwellings that are off limits to the public. Because I know one of the rangers who took us on a tour, he was saying that they have access to, they can go, obviously go places where the public can't. So And you I, would touch artifacts that you're not supposed to touch. No, I wouldn't. I would protect them. And, well, and the other thing, speaking of the artifacts too, is I would love to be able to go into that research room that you mentioned in the visitor center that where they're all just stacked in boxes, rows of boxes to see some of those artifacts and the pottery and all the things that they pulled out of these cave dwellings, like to, to have a chance to see the, some of those things. They probably have cameras in there. Well, I wouldn't take them. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even touch them. I just want to look at them. I see. Yeah. But I think for me, it would be one or two of of those parks, maybe both. Maybe I could go to Mesa Verde in the summer when all the tours are available and Carlsbad in the fall, winter, and spring. Well, if you're going to, if you're going to mention two, (laughs) I think it would be fun to be a ranger at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, be on the river ranger. Oh yeah. um, I thought you were going to say Phantom Ranch, but you mean on the river? Well, the river, there's a river district Mm -hmm. because the ranger's, they stay down there. Mm-hmm. That, that would be interesting. Although they disbanded that that crew for a few years, they had some some issues, and mm-hmm. I think I think they've reestablished it. Well, but, maybe you could maybe you could yeah. sign on for that now that it's reestablished. Uh-huh. And, yeah, I yeah. Guess. You 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 would be down there for a while. I think those are long term. I, I so do you think they're they're camping down there? Like I don't. There's not even probably. Yeah, but they I, they do have motorboats, so they they can zip up yeah. and, up and down the river. Yeah, that that would be very cool. Yeah. Okay, I'd come with you on that one too. All right, so that's you, you and I. So would... now, now I have three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, all all sixty two national parks. That's right. Susan and Bob. Yeah. And are those their real names? Yes. Susan and Bob. I think I'm they not made those up. I'm not sure if she goes by Sue. Otherwise, I would have said called her Dear Bob and Sue, but it might just be Susan. But anyway, thank you, Susan and Bob, for the question. It's a great one. If you have a question for us, you can send us an email to mattandkarensmith at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Go to facebook.com slash dearbobbins, or you can find us on Instagram at mattandkarensmith. We'll review all the questions that come in, and we'll be answering some of them in our mailbag segment on future episodes. To see pictures from our favorite hidden gems, go to www.thedearbobbinsuepodcast.com and click on the title for episode 9. There you'll find the show notes for this episode and links to other information.
We're so grateful to all of you who've already given us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't yet, Matt and I would really appreciate it if you'd take a second to write something nice about us or about the podcast or even about Carlsbad Caverns. (laughs) The books that this podcast is based on are available on Amazon.com. Just search for Dear Bob and Sue. And you can also find more information about us by heading over to www.dearbobandsue.com. Our show is produced by the amazing team at Puddle Creative in Portland, Oregon. Our artwork is by the designers at Expert Subjects, and our theme music is by Will West. Join us next time to see if I can find a way to work Carlsbad Caverns into the episode. Or if Puddle Creative can edit it out. (laughs) 